Good morning. So good to be back here. It only took two years to get invited back. So I guess it wasn't that bad the first time. Um, it's so good. It's always good. Uh, like I said before, when I was here to just come back to the church you were born in. I wasn't actually born here. I was born in a hospital. But the church that I grew up in, um, where I first learned uh, to love God's word and to see so many familiar faces and to see many new faces is uh, encouraging as well. What is the first book of the Bible that you read through? You said, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to start in a book. What book was that? It's okay to say it out loud. You can... I heard of Genesis, start at the beginning, a very good place to start. James, Matthew, Ecclesiastes. Ooh, we're going to get to Ecclesiastes. I'm glad someone said that. Uh, John, John, classic. I always tend to hear people say Genesis or John, uh, great places to start. I didn't hear anyone say Proverbs, though. That's where I started. Because I was the type of person who I was very unsure of myself, and I needed to know what is the right thing to do. And Proverbs is a great book if you're searching for practical, concrete steps of how to act and how to live in this world. The first verse that I truly memorized, not because I was doing it for Awana, which is good, but this is a verse that I wanted to memorize was Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We should maybe tape that onto our computer screens when we get on social media. But I just loved how it could give me wisdom and guidance for how to live and act. So I read through Proverbs, and then I thought, well, where should I go next? Well, I'm already there, so why not Ecclesiastes? Now, how many would say that Ecclesiastes is their favorite book? Yes, I got a few people. But not many. Ecclesiastes is a book that we feel a little uncomfortable with, especially when you compare it to Proverbs. Proverbs, very clear. If you do good, you will be rewarded. If you do bad, you will be punished. Simple. I like simple. My life is complicated enough. I need simple things. Then you get into Ecclesiastes, and suddenly it gets a little more complicated. And just to show one example, if you want to, we'll get back to Psalm 73 in a moment, but if you want to turn to Ecclesiastes 7, this is just a good example of how complicated Ecclesiastes can be. Ecclesiastes 7, beginning in verse 15. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? 
It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. What happened to the, if you do the right thing, you will be rewarded, and if you do the wrong thing, you will be punished? The author of Ecclesiastes says, that's not how life works. The guy who does the right thing, he dies early. So why even be overly concerned with doing the right thing? You're just going to die anyways. And the wicked person, they're the one who thrives and prospers. But don't be overly wicked. You know, just a little wicked, maybe. Because, you, you know, if you're too crazy, you die too soon. But what does he say? This is really, this is confusing. And Ecclesiastes says this throughout the book. It's hard to grasp and understand. But if you grasp one thing, fear God. And it's interesting for me that Ecclesiastes and Proverbs both have this idea of fearing God. Proverbs 1.7, fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Ecclesiastes, the book ends after all has been said about life's up and downs. Sometimes translations say vanity. It's more of the idea of vapor. That's your life, gone. After all of that, end of the day, fear God and keep his commandments. So it's interesting to me how these two books that seem very different can both have this idea of the fear of the Lord. So what do we mean when we speak about the fear of the Lord? It's not exactly something we like to talk about. It's not, eva- not exactly evangelism 101, right? I was always taught growing up the phrase, a healthy respect. I liked that. I like that because then I don't have to say that people should be afraid of God. But what does that mean, healthy respect? I always find when I've taught in classrooms, when you hear students using phrases again and again, it's always good to ask, what does that actually mean? And if you can't give a good answer, then you probably don't really understand what it means. So if I ask myself, what does healthy respect mean? Um, be nice, be kind. That doesn't really explain how being nice and being kind is the beginning of wisdom. Or how in Ecclesiastes, the ups and downs of life, at the end of the day, just be nice. So what do we mean when we talk about the fear of the Lord? Now, to answer that question, I could just look through all of Proverbs or do a whole study on Ecclesiastes because both of those books have that theme throughout. But I have found, as I have been reading the Psalms on a regular basis, I have found reading the Psalms to help give me a clearer idea 
of what we mean when we talk about the fear of the Lord. And there are many psalms that we could look to. Psalm 36, 53, 94. If you want to write those down, check those out later. I'm told I only have 35 minutes. There's a lot of good stuff there. But I want to focus on Psalm 73. So if you want to turn to Psalm 73, what I want to do is I just want to walk through. I know my, some people might look in the 28 verses, we are going to be here all day long. But we're going to walk through the psalm and kind of take a big picture view of where the psalmist is going, the path that he takes. And we're going to follow him along this path and see if we can understand what this biblical idea of the fear of the Lord might mean. So we begin in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is good theology. It's a great place to start. God is good. Sometimes we stay there and we don't like to follow what comes in the rest of the psalm. We like our theological truths, but we don't let them interfere with what Ecclesiastes sees as the trials of life. And maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but as someone who's wanted to know because that knowledge gives me security. I didn't get a PhD because I'm smart. Because I'm insecure and I gotta know, I gotta have the answer. I don't like to have those things mix. But the psalmist, I love the psalms because they are brutally honest and they show us a good example of how we too can be honest with God when life doesn't always go the way that we think it should. So the psalmist begins with a confession that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? What caused the psalmist to stumble. Many things in life might cause us to stumble, but what particularly causes the psalmist to stumble? For I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How many of us would readily admit to being envious of the arrogant? and the wicked. No? The psalmist sees something. That visual image is a powerful thing all the way back in the beginning in Genesis as, as it describes Eve's temptation, she saw that the fruit was good. Can make her wise. Images are a powerful, powerful thing, and every image 
has a story that it's telling. When I was in high school, I was in an art class, and the teacher told me my assignment was to convince someone of something without using words. To use the image to convince someone, not with rational argument, but to get around, to touch their heart. I currently work at Our Daily Bread Ministries, and I'm a podcast producer, and my job is to edit the interviews and the stories in a way that is easy to listen to, that makes people want to listen to it. Every story has information that we don't need, right? If I asked you what you did this morning, you wouldn't tell me you stretched your arm at a 47-degree angle. I actually don't know if that's 47 degrees, right? Blinked your eyes three times, breathed through one nostril because the other one was stuffed up, right? That's irrelevant. But what do you do? You pick and choose the elements for a particular end. If you had a bad day, you say, oh, I got up, the sun shone right in my eyes, and I stubbed my toe, right? Good day, oh, the sun was beautiful. Shone through the window, I could hear the birds chirping. We pick and choose, because these things craft a story, and every story has a moral. So what does the psalmist see when he sees the wicked? He sees their prosperity, and then he's going to have a conclusion that he draws from this. Because what we see isn't just neutral. Every story, every image has something it's trying to convince us of. So what is the story that the psalmist sees? beginning in verse 4. For there is no pain in their death, and their body is fat. Now, I want to pause right there because to be clear, in the ancient world, fatness is a sign of wealth and abundance. Right? You don't go to Meijer to pick up your groceries. You hope it rains. You hope your plants grow because if you don't, you don't eat. But the wicked, oh, they have plenty. They have more than, they have so much that they're fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Oh, they've got it easy. They've got everything they want. And they're living in the lap of luxury. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imagination of their hearts run riot. Whatever they want, they get. Whatever they want to do, they do. And to top it all off, the culmination They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against heaven, and their tongue parades 
through the earth. ESV says struts. I like that image, just strutting around. They speak against God, against their neighbors, against the poor and oppressed, and they don't care. So what happens to the psalmist? This is the story that he sees, and it sounds a lot like our Ecclesiastes passage, doesn't it? The wicked prosper. They've got it easy, pain-free, comfortable. They get away with murder. So what's the conclusion? What is the moral of the story that the psalmist sees. Verse 10, therefore his people, God's people, return to their place. The waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? There is, and is there knowledge with the most high? Whoa, whoa. Pause. Didn't we begin this psalm with God is good to those who are pure in heart? God of Israel is good. But then when we see the wicked flourishing, the psalmist says, God doesn't know. God doesn't care. Are we willing to say that those same thoughts have been entertained by us? Look, it's been a really hard week, and you know what? God will understand. We'll give a knowing wink. It's all right. It's okay. It's not that big of a deal. When we lie, we gossip, we we decide that we need to defend whatever it is that we want, and so I need to put this person in their place online. I need to tell them what. I need to bring them down. It is my job. God doesn't care. I have a right to do it. You know, my wife's been really mean to me and just badgering me, and so maybe I'll just get online late at night when she's not asleep, and I'll look at pornography. I'll gamble away our money. Whatever it may be, do we say in our hearts that God doesn't know and God doesn't care? If I'm honest with myself, which I haven't always been, that I've had that thought. Look, once saved, always saved, right? It's okay. It's not that big of a deal.
the psalmist continues with why he thinks that God doesn't know. Behold, these are the wicked. They are always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. This is sounding a lot like Ecclesiastes, right? The righteous die young. Only the good die young. Thank you. <laughs> right? The wicked are flourishing and I have tried to do the right thing. I've tried every day of my life. I've tried to be the good Christian boy that I was supposed to be. And it's just brought me nothing but trouble. It's been a waste. Waste of time, waste of energy, waste of effort, waste of money. It's not worth it. Because God doesn't even care. But then something happens to the psalmist. He continues in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I will say these things. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. I don't understand God. You want me to do the right thing, and I've tried, and it's not working. Everything seems to be against me when I try to do good. And those who don't even try, they just get whatever they want. I don't understand. And this is what I said back at the beginning. This is something that I could never say to myself. Because I know the theological truth, God is good. So I can't admit that sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And I love the psalmist because he gives us permission to say it doesn't make sense sometimes. But then something happens to radically reorient the psalmist. And we see that in verse 17. So in the midst of his confusion, it doesn't make sense until. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Some translations say they will be despised like ghosts. What is it about the psalmist entering into the sanctuary, the temple? What is it that changes the direction where he's following this, this 
the story of the wicked prospering. And he draws it to its logical conclusion. And then he enters the temple, and suddenly it's like, like that part in a detective story. Do you guys like detective shows? I like detective shows, right? A good detective show will, will feed you just a little bit of information, a little bit at a time. And then there's the moment where he finds the last clue, and suddenly it all becomes clear. I know who did it. All the dots are connected. Or if you don't like that, if you don't like detective stories, uh, think about the story of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings, right? They're surrounded, they're doomed, and the servant's like, ah, Elisha, we gotta get out of here. <laughs> We're not gonna make it. And Elisha says, God, open his eyes. And what does he see? Armies, the angels surrounding them. He sees things for how they really are. And I think something similar is going on to the psalmist. He enters into God's sanctuary and suddenly he sees. What does he see though? I'm actually, I actually don't know. It doesn't say. We think about the temple, it could be the, is it the reading of the law in the temple? Is it the sacrifices that are offered in the temple? Or is it the fact that the temple is the place where God's presence dwelled in Israel? This was heaven meeting earth. God's throne was the temple. And what happens when God comes down to earth? If you keep your finger in Psalm 73, turn back with me to Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Israel has been walking through the wilderness and they finally come and they camp at Mount Sinai. And God, after saying all the way back in Genesis to Abraham that I will be, my, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will give you a land, they became a people in Egypt, they were numerous, and God brought them. He's taking them to his land, but he's going to show them how they are to live when they enter into that land. So you get the Ten Commandments. And after the Ten Commandments are given from God on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel, what happens? Verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, or we will die. Right? This is what happens in the Bible when God's presence is made manifest. Manifest. 
People say, um, and I think an updated translation might be, ah! <laughs> Making sure everyone's awake. Right? I'm going to die. The closest I can think of, of, of something similar is, like, I was hiking uh, with some friends once, and we were following a river, get to a little waterfall, and there's a ledge you could climb out about halfway up. And I'm up there, it looks beautiful, and then I start to walk and I feel my footing, mm, I'm not so sure. And that, you feel that, I'm, I'm, I'm a goner. This is done, right? But magnify that. Like God's presence comes and they are distraught. They say, Moses, you talk to us because we can't hear God because if we hear, we are just going to fall apart. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, which always gave me a kick, right? Like, hey, don't be afraid. Like, yeah. Don't be afraid for God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. We're starting to maybe piece together what does it mean to fear God? But I want to look at one more passage before we give a definition. And that's a little further in Exodus 34. Just flip a few pages to Exodus 34. What is Exodus 34? This is the two tablets of the Ten Commandments being replaced, right? If you remember what happens, God gives them the law. They say, we will do it, God. You can count on us. And then they go build an idol, breaking the first two commandments, right? And God says, I'm going to wipe you out. Moses says, no, no, don't do it. Okay, I won't. And God reestablishes the covenant. And in this verse, in this chapter, we have the, the height of God's self-revelation in the Old Testament. He speaks to Moses. Moses can't see God. So he puts him in the cleft of the rock and he sees just the tail end. And as God is passing by, starting in verse 5, or verse 6, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on their children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Who is God? 
the fear of the Lord ultimately gets back to our belief about who we think God is. In Psalm 73, we've been shown an example of someone who has a belief about God. And what is that belief? God doesn't know. God doesn't care. God's not going to do anything. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. But what did God say about himself to Moses? What the people on the foot of Mount Sinai felt after hearing the Ten Commandments and what God said to Moses. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I want to submit that the fear of the Lord is the belief that God will do what God says he's going to do. Do we believe it? Do we believe that God will really do this? That he will make all things right? Now we like, there's a temptation at this point to be immediately thinking about other people. At some point while I'm talking, I, I suspect that each of you pictured someone in your mind. Oh, I, <laughs> I know who this sounds like. I know that person or politician or celebrity. The things that we are inundated on a daily basis as we flip through our phones. We have all these images of people that we say, I know God's going to get them, but let's pause and start the place where Jesus tells us to start, which is with ourselves. To take the log out of our own eye before trying to get the speck out of someone else's. Do we believe that God is the kind of God who will do what he says he's going to do? that he will punish those who do wrong. Now, there's a second temptation that falls from this. And it's actually two parts. One is legalism. To hear this and say, oh, I got to be perfect. I got to do everything right. And if I do anything wrong, God's going to zap me any moment. That's a fear of failure, not a fear of God. And if you're the type of person who struggles with that, I want to point you to what comes before verse 7 in Exodus 34, which is the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness in truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. If you struggle to believe that God would ever have mercy on you, hear that God 
loves you. And for those who seek his mercy, he gives it abundantly. The other temptation is the theolo fancy theological term, antinomianism. Anti-law or lawlessness. That God's merciful, I'm good to go. I got my fire insurance. Yeah, I'll try to be good. I'll try to do the right thing. But in the end, I'm good to go. I've already admitted to thinking those thoughts. And what I needed to hear is that God will make things right. We like the idea that God is going to make things right when we think about the things that other people have done to us, but we don't like the idea when we think about the things we've done to other people. I'm not saying that for every misstep, you're going to lose your salvation. What I'm saying is what Paul says in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So there's these two things that we must always keep together that's expressed so beautifully in Exodus 34, God's justice and God's mercy. And that's why, excuse me, I want to define the fear of the Lord as God's going to do what God says he's going to do, which could be either of those things. To show mercy and loving kindness and faithfulness to thousands. But also, God cares about the wrongs done in this world. And there are many wrongs done in this world. And God cares and God will do something about those things. which is a great consolation to those who have been hurt. And it should be a concern for those who have done the hurting. So one thing just practical that I have tried to do to foster this heart, this fear of the Lord, is just to practice asking for mercy. Think about the, the publican and the Pharisee in Jesus, in the Gospels. The Pharisee and the publican go up to pray, and the Pharisee says, God, thank you that I'm not like this guy. And what does the publican say? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
This isn't some self-flagellation, like, ah, I gotta beat myself all the time. This is an honest recognition that I've messed up. I've hurt people. I have done wrong. And God cares about that. God, have mercy on me. Forgive me. The psalmist, back to Psalm 73. I think has a similar realization. After going into the sanctuary and perceiving, uh, reorienting himself to this belief about who God really is, the psalmist says, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, when I had these beliefs that the wicked could get away with anything and God doesn't care. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was a bonehead. I was stupid. I was like a beast. I wasn't even thinking straight. I've been carried away by this narrative and I already alluded to the fact that the, the images and things that we see berated on a constant daily basis. I mean, I think about the psalmist and how many people he would have seen in his lifetime in ancient Israel and how many people by comparison, how many lives do we see just by turning on our phone? I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Why? Because I'm special? No. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love that image of God picking him up, saying, let me show you a better way. Guiding him, walking with him, and receiving him. Again, are we this honest with ourselves as the psalmist has been? But the psalmist knows and has experienced God's mercy despite his foolishness. And then the psalmist sums it all up in verses 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. God's mercy just comes out in this praise of who and what God, who God is and what God has done. 
And so I think this understanding of the fear of the Lord, better than the phrase that I always thought, healthy respect, gets at the heart. What is the beginning of wisdom? God's going to do what God says he's going to do. And in the trials and craziness of life, at the end of the day, when you don't know how to make heads or tails of it, God's going to do what God says he's going to do. And if that causes some discomfort in you, I think it should. But also be comforted to know that for those who seek God's mercy, he abounds, abounds in love and mercy to all who call upon his name. Amen.